chapter 4, from verses 3 to 11. Okay. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Okay? So right off the bat, there's something that seems very, very unfair. Cain brings something, Abel brings something. We're not told necessarily why one is accepted and why one is not accepted. What makes the offering of one special over the other? Uh, but what we are told is that Cain's offering is not accepted. And his reaction is an interesting one. His reaction is that he is angry. Okay? And now just think about it. If you go to God, okay? Now imagine, imagine God walks in the room. Jesus walks in the room. And he asks, you ask him a question. And he says, no. No, sorry. Doesn't work like that. Do you get angry because of the answer that you receive? Or do you go, well, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So if he's saying that, then he should probably be right. Right? And that's what makes this answer strange. Because if Cain is dealing with God, and if he knows God, then surely, surely his reaction must be one of humility. Well, if that's what, if my, if my offering is not accepted, then surely the fault lies with me and not with God, right? And, um, and God comes and finds him, verses uh, 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It is desire. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so here we get the first clue about why Cain's offering is not accepted. And the offering is actually not even mentioned. And so the first conclusion that we can draw is that it's actually not about the offering per se that he brings, but rather in the manner that he brought it. God says to him that if you do well, in other words, Cain, I'm not just rejecting you because it's you. There is a chance that you can be accepted, predicated on you doing well. If you do well, you will be accepted. If you do not, you will not be accepted. And with that comes a warning to Cain. And that warning is to us today as well. That in your rejection, in your learning, in your failure, sin crouches at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must overcome it, okay? And now, Cain's response to this is um, legendary, because we've all heard about this. Cain, <laughs> and this is where it gets really relevant for family, because Cain's response to this is, instead of doing a little bit of introspection and going, you know what? Maybe there's a slight possibility, just a teeny one, like a one percentage possibility that I'm in the wrong, right? Maybe. I mean, it's far-fetched, but maybe I'm wrong. And uh, no, his, his response is, well, if his brother is the ideal, 
then, and he's not the ideal, then maybe if I kill that ideal, then I'll be the new standard. Right? That's, that's his response. Listen to this. Okay. Cain spoke to, to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Okay, usually when God's asking questions, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. And a good response isn't to try and lie to him. Okay, life tip number one. Okay, stay tuned for more incredible insights. Okay, <laughs> um, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So, so the very nature of Cain killing Abel doesn't level the playing fields as he thinks it will. It curses the ground. It curses the very ground. And so now um, you might be thinking, yes, well, this is very obvious. But I see this happen. I see this play out in families all the time. You get a married couple. They come for counseling. And the husband likes to say, you know, a marriage is a mess because, you know, my, my wife X, Y, Z, you know, A, B, C, D, and lays down the phone and goes, okay, cool, yeah, so clearly your wife's a terrible person, that's why you married her. Um, <laughs> and then the wife will usually say something and, you know, and then she's, 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 uh, Got a, usually got a very good memory, so she starts bringing things up from five years ago, you know. <laughs> but at no time do I see, do I ever see, do I ever see somebody go, you know, at, um, we hear from marriage counseling, but I know that I messed up. Because, yeah, you know, it's easier to tear down my spouse than to take personal responsibility for the things that are going wrong in my marriage. And especially for men, because we, we want the authority, you know, and we start throwing out, yeah, well, she's just got the Jezebel spirit, you know, <laughs> and X, Y, Z. But, but the problem is, the problem is, this is Cain and Abel all over again. We married our wives because there was an ideal that we looked to, and instead of upping our game, we'd rather kill her off than look to ourselves, Right? It's Cain and Abel all over again. Brothers and sisters do it all over, do it to each other all the time. You know, instead of instead of dealing with my own junk that my siblings bring up, I'd rather tear down and talk about what terrible people they are. Hey, Abby. <laughs> yeah, you guys got uh, interesting things to talk about on the car ride home. No joking. She says very nice things about you. Okay. Um, <laughs> right? Isn't isn't that true? The definition of bad character is I act in accordance to your actions. If you act badly, I'll act badly. And if you act nicely, I'll think about acting nicely. <laughs> that is the definition of bad character. Good character goes, well, if there's a problem, the best place to probably start, because I'm a sinful person, the best place to probably start solving the problem is with myself, okay? So let me tell you the story. My wife and I, 
we, our first kid, Oliver, very cute kid, very disruptive, a boy after my own heart. And um, so, so he was born and he, you know, he, he had a few complications when he was born and he ended up in the ICU for three weeks. This poor little baby, tubes all over the place and the whole community, amazing church community jumped in, people prayed, people brought us food and uh, he nearly died but I, I strongly believe that as a community, prayer pulled him through and he's alive and kicking and mostly other kids too to today, you know? <laughs> and so now we've had this amazing moment and it's cool testimony. He's been in the ICU now for three weeks. He comes home the first night and he's screaming in my ear at two in the morning. <laughs> you know, any parent can relate to that. And there's this sudden revelation that there's nobody else to pass this baby to. Has any parent ever had that realization with their first child? Like, you're it. There's nobody else. Your wife has checked out. She's gone to bed. She said, it's your baby. You're at least 50% responsible for this. And, and I'm here with this baby, and I lost it. And I ended up shaking this three-week-old baby that just came out of the ICU. And I put the baby down called my wife, and I said, I've got a problem. Because realistically, a three-week-old baby is not to blame. It's doing what a baby does, you know, which is cry and annoy its parents. Um, all the pregnant people are so excited, yes. <laughs> it gets a lot better, sort of. <laughs> That's at least what the older parents tell me, anyway. <laughs> right? It's, it's not the baby's fault, it's you. And I know, thankfully, I've got a good church community and I've got a lack of boss that, you know, um, gently likes to point those things out to me, that it's your fault. And I put down the baby, the next day I phoned up a friend, um, Keith Elliott from Victory Church, I said, hey, Keith, I need counseling. Because I know that the problem is me. The problem is not the baby. Right? The story of Cain and Abel is a story that still continues today in the fact that, number one, it is easier to destroy than to deal with your own heart. Okay? That is lesson number one. For some people, or at least should I say that they believe that it is easier to destroy things. It's easier in the moment. In the long, in the long term, you're dealing with you know, people that have been married for 20 plus years and they still don't know how to deal with their mess because there's a lot of finger pointing it's a lot of it's a 20 years of this not one moment did they ever think that maybe you know and this is a very big problem especially when you get to chapters like Philippians 2 you know Philippians 2 says that that Jesus was obedient even to death on the cross Therefore, he has the name that is above every other name, okay? That word, therefore, his authority, the name that is above every other name, is directly tied to his obedience on the cross. <clears throat> In other words, him taking responsibility for you and me is what assigns him 
the authority and the name that is above every other name. Not who he is. Okay? Just because you're special and your mommy said you're special does not mean that you are right. Amen? Yes. Abigail? <laughs> I'm joking. I'm picking on Abby today. You're my favorite. <laughs> right? And this is a special point because if you want authority, this is a pro-life tip. If you want authority in different situations, you want authority in your marriage, you want authority with your kids, you want authority at work, learn to take responsibility. Responsibility and authority, they go hand in hand. Because Jesus took responsibility for you and me, he has the name that is above every other name. Okay? And we have to also then differentiate. I'm not talking about fault. Okay? Our sin is not Jesus' fault, but he still takes responsibility. Okay? He still goes, I have the power, I can take the action. That is why he's the boss. If you want to be boss in your home, okay, I don't want to sit with you and your wife and you go, you know, my wife's doing this, this, this. If you're a man, you take responsibility for what goes on in your home. It's you. The buck stops with you. Amen? Okay? If not, then you're not the boss. The boss is the person that takes responsibility. Okay? Ask anyone that owns a business. The boss is the person that takes the responsibility. When the tax man comes calling and uh, you haven't paid taxes, they don't go talk to the employees. Who do they go talk to? The boss. <laughs> okay. Okay, but let's go to another example. Oh, so point number two, sorry, is that, and this is, this is the encouraging part, if you aren't encouraged by now. The encouraging part is that if you do well, you will be accepted. Okay? You can be accepted. It's not a toss-up in the air whether or not God's going to accept you or not. It's if you do well, you'll be accepted. If you don't, you won't be accepted. Okay? And that has a different, a different context under the new covenant, which we're going to discuss now. What does it mean to do well? Okay, so let's go to Luke chapter 15, the best book in the Bible. So uh, Luke chapter 15, this, we're going to talk about the story of the prodigal son because this is a story of a, another family, okay? But here we see a little bit more of a, a, a modern take on the story of Cain and Abel. And it's very, very possible um, that Jesus being who he is was very much referencing the story of Cain and Abel because once again, and there's a, there's a couple of scholars that believe that this parable is wrongly titled because it's not, it's not actually just about one, one brother. There are two brothers in this story. And um, there's a book, there's a really great book you can read that really dissects the story quite well um, called Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. And I recommend you read that. But, and Timothy Keller says that this, this story is actually about two brothers. They both want... The, the problem is that they both want the father's stuff. They just don't want the father. And the one son goes about getting the father's stuff by being very, very bad. And the other son tries to get the father's stuff by being very, very good. But both sons are at fault here, 
right? That is the story. And um, it's, it's, almost a, it's almost a retake on the story of the story of Cain and Abel. It's that idea, that story that is very, very old, even by non-Christian scholar standards, it's played itself out 4,000 years later to this point. And it's still, it's still true at this point. You have two brothers, okay? And one does, one does well, and we're going to look at how the brother does well, okay? Um, because like I said, doing well under the new covenant is, is a different context. And the one does badly, but he's still, he's still not happy about it. Okay, so let's read it. Um, I'm, I wanted to read the first two parables, um, but just for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over and go straight to the parable, parable of the prodigal son. But um, if you're at home, and I highly encourage you to read this in your personal capacity, read the first two parables of this chapter, because um, if, you, if you follow the, the syntax, Jesus is actually telling these three parables right after each other. So the, the first two parables in this chapter give a lot of context to the parable of the prodigal son. Um, but just briefly, we all know it's, it's the guy about, it's the parable about the guy who leaves the 100 sheep to go find the 99, uh, to go find the one, not the 99, leaves the 99, goes and finds the one sheep. Okay, uh, this is a story for all the accountants because apparently somebody counted all the sheep. And um, <coughs> Jesus loves accountants. Hey, Daniel, thinking of you. Okay, and then the story of the lost coin. So once again, two stories about a treasure, about somebody paying a high price to go find something small, okay? And you can see how that, how that links into the story of the prodigal son. Okay, so let's read this together. Luke chapter 15 from verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to the, his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his, his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed, fi feed figs, feed pigs. <laughs> and he was a longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now remember what I said before, okay? Wisdom dictates that when you need to make right with somebody or when there's a problem, any given problem, it probably starts with you, okay? And why does, why does the, son do, the younger son do well? Because he comes to this realization. It's not my father that has been mean to me. It's not my brother that's been mean to me. It's I, I have sinned. I have sinned against heaven and earth. And a lot of us read the story and we relate ourselves to the, the younger son, and rightly so. Because for a lot of us, when we first get saved, we were this, we were this younger son. We came to a realization that 
what we were doing and the way that we were caring about it was not right. And, or at the very least, it wasn't leading to anything that we'd want to be, right? Um, and many, many, many people all over the world meet Jesus at the worst times of their lives. Okay, and, and I, if I was going to probably do a poll of the people just sitting here, most of you would probably say that at a time when you weren't doing well, that was a time when you met Jesus, right? Is that fairly true? Yeah, and, and it's fairly relatable. And, and the thing that you come to realize in this, and if you want a good, a good starting point on why do bad things happen, it's because of this reason. For some of us, we only listen when bad things happen. It's when things are going well that we don't want anything to do with God, right? <clears throat> we want his stuff. We want the stuff of God. We'd like that credit card of heaven, but we don't want God, right? Um, and what the son comes to realize is that he got ev given everything that he wanted and it still led to absolutely nothing. And the reason why the father at the end of the story makes such a big deal and the father represents God in the story or, or Jesus is that the son came to the realization it wasn't the father, it wasn't his stuff, it was me. I'm, I'm the person at fault here, okay? And this is the beginning blocks of what it is to do well. Um, it's the beginning of the gospel story. The gospel story, the beginning of the gospel story says that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, okay? But luckily, that's not where the story ends. But when he came to, um, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. So he's, he's beginning to prepare the speech that he's going to say to God. He's, his heart's already changed. He's acknowledged that oh, my father wasn't a jerk. He even treats his servants well. <coughs> it's me. So he starts to prepare the speech. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I guess I should repent of smoking or something. I don't know. That was a joke, okay? Just a joke. Some nervous laughter there. Yeah. I'll tell you this funny story later if I've got time. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Okay, this is the gospel message. This is doing well. If you do well, you will be accepted. What is doing well? Uh, problems probably with me and I need to go to my father. That is doing well. Okay? You have done well when you acknowledge that the problem is with you and you go to, to Jesus. Okay? That is, that is the gospel message. That is salvation in a nutshell. Okay? And, in fact, you are so well, what happens when the, when the sun pitches up? He is accepted. He has done well. He has acknowledged in his heart that he is the one that is at fault, and he is the one that needs salvation. 
okay? I, it's me. Me, myself, I. I am the problem. And he goes to his father, and what does he find? He finds acceptance. He does not bring an offering, okay? Because under the new covenant, under the new covenant there's an acknowledgement that there is no offering that you can bring, Okay? It's not about the offering. It's not about the fact that Abel brings one thing and Cain brings another thing. It's not about the cards that you've been dealt in life or the family members that you've been dealt in life. Okay? I mean, some people have good parents. Some people have bad parents. Some people have moderately acceptable parents. <laughs> it's not about that. Okay? It's not about the things that you've been given. It is... I acknowledge that I'm the one that needs to change and I need to go to Jesus. The only offering that I can bring is a contrite and broken heart. But that is acceptable to God. And what, what happens? The son is accepted. He's embraced. He's kissed. And not only that, but his position is restored. Okay? His position from, from before the fall. Okay? He's given a, a ring, which is authority. He's given a robe which is identity. He's given um, sandals, which is purpose. He's given those three things right off the bat just by coming to his father. That is the beauty of the story. Okay? Verse 25, now his older brother was in the field. You know, remember, this is a direct play on Cain and Abel. It's the older brother who is Cain. It's the younger brother who is Abel. And this is a little bit of a slap in the face for Jewish tradition because so much is made of the older brother. The older brother gets the double portion. The older brother is the smartest, but it's actually the youngest. That's the better one, eh, Abby? Amen. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting car ride home. Yeah. If Abby doesn't uh, arrive tomorrow, suspect number one is her sister. Okay, great. So now the older brother's in the field, and he came and drew near to him. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but, his father, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his, the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that, I ha that is mine is yours. Remember that thing. Just once, just once the father's stuff, right? And the father acknowledges, everything that I have is yours. It's like, whatever you want. And, and, and very much literally, because if you talk about inheritance... The son would have, the older son would have inherited a double portion, okay? But it is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your younger brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found, okay? And that's, so for a lot of us, when we get saved, we identify with, uh, with the younger brother, but there are a lot of us that after we're saved, we slowly transition into this older brother, right? We get We've experienced the goodness of God in our own lives. We don't know why everybody else isn't following suit, and it must be them. Right? Uh, who of you, who of you, after you got saved, everything automatically 
just started going well? Uh, probably not, eh? Probably like you had to deal with a whole lot of stuff after you get saved, right? It's the, it's the working out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's the story, to a certain extent, only starts here. And, and this story, you can become one of two characters. You will either in bitterness become the older brother, cynical and bitter, or if you're wise, you look at the story and you go, okay, now that I'm saved, what do I have to do to become like the father in the story? Okay? We all want to be Christ-like, right? Right? Amen? It's a good, I mean, you're called Christian, Christ, Christ-like, okay? All Christians. So a good goal, okay? Because it's not this that we'd like to stop murdering relatives. That's a good start, okay? Please stop murdering your relatives. But what do we want to attain? And a good blueprint, and this is why this parable is so cool, because it's a fantastic blueprint of what do I want to look like in a couple of years? And hopefully I want to be like that father. Okay? That father is unoffendable. Who has a case? If anybody in the story, who has a case against the younger brother? It's the father. And yet he is the one that embraces him, right? Let's go to the next slide there. He's prepared in season because it's not just that you want your relatives to get saved. That's a good question to start with. Do you want your relatives to get saved? Hopefully that's a yes, not necessarily an obvious question. But who of you are prepared to, to receive your relatives if they do get saved? Right? They're going to be the same people with the same mess. It's not like if they get saved, they will, they're going to turn into these wonderful people that are so nice to live with, right? But this, this, this part of being undefendable, my, my security lying in Jesus comes with a being prepared in any season, in any time, my father might walk through the door. My brother might walk through the door. My sister might walk through the door. And am I now going to bring up all the junk from my past or am I going to run? No questions asked and embrace. Okay? So this, just a disclaimer, I'm, I'm not talking about the fact that there needs to be boundaries with family. Okay? Because if the son comes back, he needs to come back with respect. Okay? He has to respect the father. This can't be an ego trip. Okay? For, we, we've got family that we struggle and we, to deal with, and we, we have boundaries in place. But them coming back, they are always welcome, but there are conditions. One of the conditions is that, hey, there has to be an acknowledgement that at the very least it takes two to tango. Yes, I mean, I'm not Jesus in this story, so I do acknowledge that, that my half needs to come to the party as well, but, but we need to both start from that perspective. Boundaries are important, okay, just as a disclaimer, but having said that, there needs to be a generosity of spirit as well, okay, that when family, come, when family comes back for the sake of reconciliation, they are not going to come back, you know, perfect. Amen? They're probably going to be like you when you were saved. 
And I'm sure your mommy told you that you were amazing. But uh, for the rest of us, you know, we had to deal with you. No, I'm joking. You're all lovely. Let's all stand together. <laughs> I really encourage you just to take Luke chapter 15 to read it through and meditate on it this week. And I want you, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to guide you in, in practically exploring how do I set myself up to become like the father in this story? I don't want to become like the old brother. I don't want to get cynical every time I hear of somebody getting saved. I don't want to be bitter that other people seem to be excelling spiritually, but I seem to be going nowhere. But Father, how do I become like you? <clears throat>